Let's pray together. Almighty God, we give you praise and thanks that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are, in fact, uh, preaching to the watching world, that we are declaring that Jesus Christ has died on the cross and has risen from the dead, and that the efficacy of his death is the only way to have sins washed away. And we just pray, Lord, that you would give us boldness to testify to the gospel of Jesus Christ as we share the gospel with loved ones, with our neighbors and co-workers, and as we speak the truth in love in this crooked and perverse generation. So, Lord, we do pray that, with ex- that you would help us to have that kind of witness as we live with expectancy of Christ's return, as we look forward to the consummation of his kingdom, where every knee will bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we pray that you would give us that confidence even as we seek to testify in this generation. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Please turn in your Bibles to John's Gospel, John chapter 18. Beginning in verse 33, the Gospel of John, chapter 18, beginning in verse 33. And this is the very Word of God. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber, or in the original, an insurrectionist. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you pray with me now? Almighty triune God, as we have worshipped you this morning in song, through your word, through the celebration of the Lord's Supper, we thank you that you are such a good and merciful God. We recognize how we are undeserving of your many blessings, even the blessings of life and of life in Christ. You are so kind to us, not 
giving us what we deserve, and in another sense, blessing us with so much that we don't deserve. We thank you that you are, in fact, our creator and our redeemer. And we are reminded of all the ways that you have blessed us even here in this country. As we think of all those men who have died even to preserve the freedoms that we enjoy, even the freedom of worship here this morning. As we think of soldiers who have fought in many wars, defending those freedoms so that we could be here and not be interrupted and that we can worship you in freedom. We thank you for that common grace. We also want to pray for your mercy upon the nations that we are so connected to, not only our nation of Canada, but as we think of our American neighbors, we pray as they go through elections even this week, that you would have mercy, mercy, Lord, upon that nation. They don't deserve it, but we ask you to show your kind and merciful character to them even in these elections. We pray for our government leaders. We pray for Prime Minister Trudeau. We pray for Daniel Smith and for Jody Gondek and for all of the different staff and various politicians, bureaucrats at various levels, Lord. We pray that there would be a great turning to you in rejection of sin, rejection of pride, rejection of arrogance and presumption, and a rejection of all the atheism, all the acting as if you were not there. There'd be a turning from that and a turning to you, a submission to you, a believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and that masses of people in our governments would be saved. Lord, you can remove hearts of stone and replace them with living hearts, hearts of flesh. We pray that you would do that. We know that you would be glorified in it, so we ask that you would do that. Lord, we thank you for mercies and graces even to people we know. We thank you for uh, the report that Fairview Baptist Church has found a, a new facility, a new building. We just thank you for your, your kindness to that congregation, and we pray that you would use them in this prospect of this new building for much gospel advancement in this dark and needy city. We pray as well for people in our own church who are hurting, who have lost, lost loved ones, who are suffering with pain, pain of illness, pain of loneliness. And even as we have, all of us, the pain of unsaved loved ones and neighbors and co-workers. But Lord, I pray that you would cause us to be a people with the gospel on our lips, that the gospel would be the most important thing about us, and that we would be those who testify to the gospel in this age. And Lord, as we consider your word, as we consider our role in this world, and yet belonging to the world to come, I pray that you would give us great wisdom now. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you're a political junkie like I am, 
you'll know that there's, there's a lot of talk in Christian circles regarding politics about Christian nationalism, so-called. We were even talking about it with the elders here just before the service started. And there are these different philosophies and ideas about Christians and politics. Most commonly, there's, there's two general schools of thought, certainly in Reformed circles. <coughs> Excuse me. The one is the idea that there are two kingdoms. The spiritual kingdom and then the civil kingdom, the civil magistrate. Now God is Lord over all, but that's the two realms. The other school of thought is more the idea that every square inch of all of life is, is something that God says He is Lord of all. And that comes from Abraham Kuyper, the former Prime Minister of the Netherlands. But when we see Jesus here in our text in John 18 and verse 36, we see that Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. So what are we to make of that? Well, the first thing to see is that Christ has a kingdom. He has a kingdom. Now, if you're like me, you don't really think about kings and kingdoms too much. Closest comparison for us is to think of the late queen, Queen Elizabeth. And she had just passed away, but we think of her rights, her power, her majesty as a monarch, if you will. Then we think of her son, King Charles. And all of these are then a small comparison. In fact, it's not even really at a place where we can make a comparison even to the Lord Jesus and His kingdom. Christ has a kingdom. We may call it the Messianic kingdom. He is the Christ, the anointed one, which means He is anointed as the king. You remember Genesis 3.16? There is the promised seed of the woman. Or... In Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15, there is a prophet like Moses that was predicted. Or in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the son of David was predicted and prophesied. And God said, he is the one who will build a house for God's name. And his throne will be established, not for years or decades or as, as it was for some of David's descendants. No, his throne would be established forever. So there is then this anticipated messianic kingdom, the kingdom of the Messiah. And one of the things that happens when we think about Jesus, it's easy for us to forget that in all of Jesus' humility, in all of his humiliation, He never abdicated his rights. 
He never abdicated his entitlements as king. He was still always the king, even as he chose humiliation. And so when people speak today, this is another thing that Christians will talk about, they'll talk about theonomy, or they'll talk about theocracy. Well, theonomy, that's government under God's law by definition, or theocracy, God as the direct ruler. That's what those, the etymology of those words means. Many people, when they hear those terms, they simply mean that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. Jesus is the anointed Messiah. Now, there are others who, want, who will restrict those terms to mean something more like, you know, let's make the old covenant great again. You know, something like that. Um, that actually was a joke, but it's, it was a really nerdy kind of Bible scholar joke, so it didn't really land because everybody's like, oh, okay, didn't catch that. That's kind of how it'll go, but that's, we're dealing with politics. Anyways, what about Christ's kingdom then, though? Christ's kingdom, his kingdom, his unique kingdom, has features that are unexpected. He says it is, verse 36, not of this world. So that means it's not belonging to this world. It doesn't belong. And so we're reminded his kingdom had this component of arriving, but not being fully consummated, of being on the scene in a now way, but not being consummated in a not yet way. So for example, we, we know that from Revelation chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 19, that Jesus is coming again, we just talked about it in communion, Jesus is coming again, but he's coming as a king with a sword coming out of his mouth. Terrifying to those who do not belong to him. But that is then the future application, as it were. This promise of his kingdom that has not been realized and yet is sure. That is what then marks us out. But in the meantime, when Jesus came... He described his kingdom in the various terms that we've come to know. For example, in Matthew 13, he describes his kingdom like a mustard seed. What was the feature of a mustard seed? It comes small and then is very big. Or, Matthew 5, his kingdom is light breaking into a dark place. Or, in John 12... It's like wheat, a kernel of wheat, that it goes from a seed that dies to bearing a hundredfold. Christ's kingdom is not of this world. 
It belongs to the future, consummated, new heavens and new earth. But it has broken into the present. But it doesn't belong to this world. This, as Paul says in Galatians 1.4, this present evil age. It doesn't belong, Philippians 2.15, to this crooked and perverse generation. We can say, he came to this, he entered into this, but he didn't belong to this. And for those loyal to his kingdom, he knows that they don't belong to this either. Just turn back into chapter 17 of John. John 17 and verse 15. John 17 and verse 15. Jesus then in praying, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not, what does it say? Of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So there's a sense in which even his followers don't belong. That's why Christians are called pilgrims. Why we're called sojourners. The Apostle Paul, in taking up this theme, he says that our citizenship, I think Gavin alluded to it in his opening prayer, Our citizenship is primarily not in Canada, not in Alberta, just a comment for the separatists in my family, but anyways, just talking to my boys here, and maybe me. That's not where the primary citizenship is. The citizenship is in heaven, in the consummated new heavens and new earth. Paul says so in Philippians 3.10, speaking of our citizenship in heaven. And then he tells the Philippians that they are to act, to conduct themselves as citizens, in Philippians 1.27, citizens worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's, you won't see it in the English, but in the original Greek, it is a, it is a politics type of Greek word. Act like a citizen according, worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now today, when, when you lay out this simple truth, I've seen this online now, when you lay out this simple truth that we are, our citizenship is in heaven and that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, then there's people who will misinterpret that in two ways. They will think, on the one hand, that you are passive about life now, that you don't care about life now. Or they might think, oh, you're a dualist. You're one of those people that thinks spiritual good, but physical bad. But as we're going to see, Jesus was very aware of the politics of man. 
It's not that, oh, well, we're just going to have kind of pie in the sky and just be so heavenly minded we're no earthly good. No, Jesus himself was very aware of all of the politics and everything that goes on in this world, but he was not of this world. And so we're using, we're talking about politics. It is one of the major engagements of our lives as, as people, but it is also representative of all of, all of our engagements as human beings in this world. But that brings me from Christ's kingdom to the politics of man, my second point. Because where do kingdoms come from? Where do we get politics? Well, it started actually in the garden with the first marriage, the first family, the first then extended family, to the first tribes, to the first kingdoms and, and nations. Genesis chapter 10 is known as the table of nations. That's where these nations, and they start out as just extended families. Now because of the fall of man, families and extended families and tribes and kingdoms, they've fought others. And Jesus says as much. So if you, you know, you're surprised, but you know, in our passage, in verse 36, Jesus is aware of this. He says in verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. So Jesus is, is in this instance, he is recognizing, I think, the rightful role of self-defense in fighting for your king and for your kingdom and for your nation. You know, this... This kind of a, a patriotism that is a family affection. Jesus is not denying the politics of man. There will be the organization of individuals and families and nations. Even you think about the Great Commission. Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19, it recognizes the existence of various nations, various ethne, various ethnic Groups, ethnicities. There's evidence even in this gathering here. They're assembled, those, those ethnicities, they're assembled in an identifiable way somehow. And he says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We have to remember as well, Jesus himself was an ethnic Jew. Now, just think about the history of Israel. God had called Israel to defend their borders, to refuse intermarriage with Gentiles, and above all, to offer worship exclusively to their covenant God, the God of Israel, and to no others. But then this is why, and if you're a newer Christian, you maybe have noticed this as you're reading along and maybe been surprised at it, why the Old Testament is filled with, with narrative history of the ways that God commanded and endorsed Israel's battles against the surrounding nations. This is why, for example, when you get to the book of Joshua, you may be surprised at the extent to which then Joshua are, maps out for us Israel's commission to 
wipe out, by war, wipe out the Canaanites. And this is the history of the Old Testament. You get, as you go along, even you get into, for example, the, the monarchy, Saul, then David, and then David's descendants, Solomon, and so forth. They're fighting the Amalekites. Or they're fighting the Philistines. And we know the famous battle even with David and Goliath of Gath, who was a Philistine. So these are nations. This is politics. Politics and war. Now Israel was God's special possession. And because they had rejected God, they were judged and God sent them into exile. Then he mercifully brought them back from captivity, but he never really restored their independence that they had. The book of Daniel prophesied the rise of various empires, including predicting the Greeks and then the Romans. And Israel then, after a, a war of independence by the Maccabees, Israel then compromised and became more and more like the pagan Greeks. And they retreated then into a harsher legalism, many of them, the legalism of the Pharisees or even the desert preppers out in the deserts of the Qumran community, the Essenes. And that's then, right then, is when Jesus comes on the scene, incarnate, born of a virgin, Anno Domini, A.D., the year of our Lord. So that's the political context. God took on flesh in a particular political, patriotic, nationalistic, and fragmented context. But if you look at John 18, if you see the whole chapter here, John 18 sums up the political situation that Jesus faced. It was all there. Verses 1 to 11, you can just scan it in your Bibles. In verses 1 to 11, Jesus is arrested by soldiers due to the betrayal of Judas. Now, where do these soldiers come from? Well, they were ordered by the chief priest. So politics and religion were intertwined. And people responded to this in verse 10 by Peter, chop the guy's ear off. Okay? Like that's his response. And Jesus says in, in, in John 18, verse 11, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Peter was, in one sense, rightfully defending Jesus. But Jesus' point was that his kingdom is not of this world. He's got a different kind of a mission. Of course, then Jesus was put to trial by the high priest. We aren't even to the Romans yet. Jesus defended himself. In court, he gave a true testimony to his ministry in verse 20. He said, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. That's him giving a courtroom defense. Jesus even could appeal, as he goes on to, he could appeal to his hearers to confirm this, appealing to witnesses just like you would in a court of law. Then Jesus was brought from then this Jewish jurisdiction, brought to the Roman jurisdiction, to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor then in verses 28 and following. 
Now, like most politicians, Pilate, he wanted to pass the buck. Sound familiar? If you're a, there's no politicians here, so I'm just going to you know, talk about politicians. If you're a politician, sorry, we're just going to talk about you. Um, Pilate didn't want to deal with Jesus. He, he, he preferred that the Jews look after it. But he had to deal with Jesus, and so he asked the question in verse 33. He says, are you the king of the Jews? And you know, Jesus, of course, he turns the tables on Pilate. And he said, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? He's actually getting it. Like, are you, are you confessing me as Lord, essentially? Is that what you're saying? Is that what you're, you're, you're seeking and digging for? You're actually really wanting to believe and submit? Or are you just parroting what other people have said? Which, of course, he was. And Pilate answered, verse 35, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? See, Pilate is the perfect example, I think, of the bewildered politician. He's a bewildered politician. He doesn't know what to do with Jesus or with anyone who would claim faith and loyalty to the true God. And it's the same today. One of the things we get, you know, we, we get surprised at is why politicians don't seem to understand anything about Christians and the church and Christianity. They're bewildered. They just don't know what to do with us. And sometimes that bewilderment leads to fear and hostility. But a lot of it is just, they just they're just dumbstruck. They don't know what to do. And even though politics and government ought to be marked by law, grounded in truth, Pilate, like most politicians, he asked that cynical, rhetorical question. He says, what is truth? And if you were to find the the real campaign slogan of most politicians today, it would be this. What is truth? As if it can't be known. As if it's unknowable. It's agnostic. Yeah. You know, it's just might makes right or money makes right or, you know, however many people I can get to like me makes right. But what is truth? Nah. What's true for you isn't true for me. But we should never then, just seeing this survey, I hope you see, we should never think that Jesus is unconcerned or unaware or ambivalent to the politics of man. He was born into it and he ministered within a political world. So if you think, oh well, politics, I don't even want to think about it. Well no, that's, that's the wrong approach because that's not Jesus' approach. But then what about politics and the church? You see in your handout, my third point. And then I have the little subtitle, Individuals or Institutions. Well, there is a fundamental question that we all need to ask ourselves when we're talking about politics and the church. We have to ask, what is the mission of the church? What is the mission of of the church. Now, the elders, we read a book a number of years ago published by Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert of that title. 
what is the mission of the church? And in that book, and I think we, we've really held to it all these years, in that book, the authors made the fundamental distinction between the church as an, an institution, you know, in our case, Calvary Grace Church. It is a church as an institution, as a, as a corporate body. The distinction between that and Christians as individuals. Okay? So, the church as a corporate body, a corporate institution, and then Christians as individuals. That, you have to keep that distinction in mind. So, for example, the church has to stay on mission, advancing the gospel, the gospel message, because that is the only way that sinners can be converted to the glory of God. That is our mission. But along the way, individual Christians who are in the church, who are biblically equipped, well then they're going to do all manner of things. They are going to, and ought to, for example, they're going to obey the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. They are going to be salt and light. So not only are you going to hold forth the gospel of Jesus Christ, but in how you live, there's going to be a pattern of the way you live that is salty, that has this kind of preservative function. Or you're going to live in such a way that there's a light in your life that shows that there's a distinction in how you conduct your business, how you raise your family, how you think, how you speak. And in all these things are going to be marked by you. And you're not going to keep your light under a bushel basket, but you're going to set that light on a hill. You're going to say, yeah, I'm going to put my life out there in how I do things, how I raise my kids, what, how I use my leisure, how I build my business, or how I work as an employee, or how I vote. I'm going to put all that out there on display. So you see, there's a distinction between the institution and the individual. Now, I would suggest that when those two get switched, we have trouble. We get in real trouble. So, for example, when the church, as institution, tries to be everything, tries to be every agency, tries to be everything to everyone, tries to be a social agency, tries to be a, a political power block, I'm talking about the institution, Try the church being in business, or the church being in art, or the church being in entertainment, or the church being in politics, whether left or right, you have great compromise. I would also say that is the Roman Catholic view, it's also the view of the Mormons. The Roman Catholics, well, they've got, they, they buy land. Like, they've got a Vatican. They have ambassadors to other nations as a church, as an institution. You know, it's said that the, the Mormon church is the, is the largest landholder west of the Mississippi, you know, in the U.S. Like, at, at, like the church owns the land. But that's not, that's not what the Bible says. Or, the other way, though, 
is when Christians, when they reduce their witness only to believing a few correct things about the gospel, and they reduce their life to that, and, and then they decide, well, then the rest of my life, I'm just going to live like the world. And we've got tons of people do that. They, you know, you, you, you look at their life, you don't think they're a Christian, but then they say, oh, yeah, yeah, but I made a decision back, you know, in 2000. Oh, oh, okay. So, so you've got the gospel, but evidently there's nothing else in your entire witness of your life that would reflect that you live with a Christian worldview. So it's not as if then they're being, they're all about the gospel. They've forgotten all about their worldview, all about their vocation, all about their work as worship, all about their salt and light, all about the application of God's lordship in their lives. They've forgotten about all that. That's what happens when you get these flipped. Now what's required to keep this straight? Well, Jesus gives us the key here. He gives us the key. Look, look at chapter 18 and verse 37. Pilate said, so you are a king. You are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world. And then what does he say? To bear witness to the truth. Now this is, this is it. This marks out the kingdom. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. You see, this is for the individual. The individual lives and bears witness to the truth. But institutionally, as a church, we bear witness to the truth. The church here, what is the mission of the church? To bear witness to the truth of the gospel. That's what we're about. The church doesn't know much about like, like this church, Calvary Grace, we don't know much about economics, don't know much about art history, don't know much about entertainment. Yeah, it's not, not too fun around here, just a little bit fun. Whatever it might be, don't know much about politics. But what we do know is that we bear witness to the truth of the gospel. That is what we are, re- we really know that, and we really declare that. But I can go to, I can go through all, all sorts of members' lives here in this church, and I can go to them, and I can see you have converted Christians who bear witness to the truth of the gospel in their spheres of life. And so you see it. You see, well, this is how then someone who believes in Jesus Christ conducts their business as a teacher or a plumber, or a businessman, or a homemaker. Because they're applying it, and they've got subject matter expertise, but they're applying and bearing witness to the truth in those realms. So then as we consider the kingdom of Christ and the politics of man, there is then... This big question, I would say, that we, this big question we always need to ask. So if you, so if you're, if you're, some of us here, we're 
you're reading about theonomy, or you're reading about theocracy, you're reading about Christian nationalism, or you hear about this stuff, or you think about politics, or you don't want to think about politics, and you're like, you know, I don't, I don't, don't, don't talk to me about politics. I don't want to hear about it. Whatever it might be, there is then this big question that we have to ask, and it's simply this. Who are we talking about? Who are we talking about? Are we talking about the church as an institution, corporate body, or are we talking about individual Christians? And this clarifies it very quickly. U.S., follow the U.S. guys, you know, friends of mine, many of them, talking about Christian nationalism. But the question is, okay, are you talking about Christian nationalism as a function of the church, as a, as a corporate body, or are you talking about it as individuals? The church, corporate, is not a political action committee. It's not. It would be wrong to have a political candidate come and speak from this pulpit to this little voting block here. That would be wrong. At the same time, Christians can create a political action committee. Individual Christians can do that. And I would suggest some more people around here ought to. The church, as the church, does not grab the levers of power. But we need to be praying that there would be godly Christians raised up who could. Individuals who know about politics. I mean, a good example is William Wilberforce. He's cited many times. He loved the Lord, knew God solid theologically, but he was skilled in politics in a way a lot of folks weren't in that day. He knew more about politics than his pastor, John Newton, did. You know, and so he, so he could, that was his realm. And so in his voting, in his advocacy, he was trying to grab on to the levers of power, and that was appropriate for him to do as an individual Christian. So we have to remember the church's mission as church is the advance of the gospel. To glorify God through the advance of the gospel. If, you, if we get off that, then we'll just be filled with dead men's bones. But at the same time, Christians who practice good churchmanship are nevertheless transformational. They transform everything. You know what we see when, when someone comes to faith in Christ? Their life is transformed. They, they change. And so their habits change. Their spending habits change. Their, what they focus on changes. Their families change. Their marriages change. How they raise their kids change. How they conduct their business changes. How, what kind of a neighbor they are changes. And all of a sudden, there's these ripple effect changes in their lives. And that's for doctors or farmers or homemakers or crane operators or engineers or teachers. But corporately, we always need to remember that the church, that all of us, we are foreigners. We don't belong here. We, and, and as we live as foreigners, and some of you, you know, you've, you've immigrated to, to Canada, so you know what this is. 
as foreigners, as Christians who our citizenship is in heaven, we actually live in such a way that we're showing people this is how we do things back home. This is how we live back home. We live like we live back home. We, we, we actually are from another country. We're actually from a better country. And this is how we do things there. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we live showing people how we live back home. Christians are equipped then to know the gospel, but also to let their light shine actively, boldly, out there for everybody to see, even as Matthew 5.16 says, then others will, Jesus said, see your good deeds, and what will they do? They'll see your good deeds, and they will give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See that? We keep the mission of the church, right? But individual Christians are letting their light shine. And so just to frame it in terms of my opening, I would say that the church, as the church, needs to live and understand this kind of two kingdoms perspective. That's the corporate way of thinking about it. And that's the historic reform position. At the same time, individual Christians ought to live with that worldview perspective, that Kuiper-type perspective, that transforming perspective, so that everything in your life, you should be thinking, well, how can I think about, think about as a Christian, how am I going to change how I do things to honor God personally? So that by my good deeds, people will see and glorify my Father in heaven. And if we do that, then that kind of light that we show, that kingdom light will be shown to be not of this world. And then people will wonder, how do I get some of that? How do I get that? And it will only be through Jesus Christ who said, my kingdom is not of this world. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would give us clarity about these things, about the, even these conflicts and about the challenges of politics in this age, but help us to keep our focus on the mission of the church, but also, Lord, help us to be salt and light, to shine as lights in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we respond in worship. Please rise. The question for all of us this morning is, are you a part of his kingdom? Because Jesus began his ministry and he said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That is your duty today. Repent and believe in the gospel. Go in peace.